Well, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Hindsight is 2200. As always, I am your host, Chad Michael Bouton, and thank you so much for coming back for another great episode. For those of you that missed the last episode, I sat down to the founders of Ramble Tag out of Scotland over in the UK, Tom Forsyth and Laura McLean. It was a great, great episode. I had a lot of fun, lots of laughs, lots to learn. So if you missed that episode, please, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one. And again, um, you can always find the podcast on Anchor. So please be sure to follow the link there. Anyways, what are we doing today? Well, today I'm talking to a personal friend of the show, someone that I have so much respect for. And um, I've known since I was a young man. Um, if, you, if we want to talk about true dog whisperers, this man is a dog whisperer for sure. Please, we're going to talk a lot about medical um, history, conditioning, um, the things that he's done to help the guide dogs and service dog programs that he has worked with. Please welcome my guest, the great and powerful Dr. Kevin Conrad. We Well, thank yeah. you so much, Chad. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, That's I'm really, really cool. Yeah, I'm so excited that I could get you on as a guest. Um, you are phenomenal. I mean... I don't say this just to, you know, stroke the ego or butter you up. You truly are one of the like greatest doctors I've met in my lifetime. Wow. Wow. That's a huge statement. I really, I really mean that. All right. And that's just the humans. (laughs) Wait till we get to the animals. (laughs) Yeah. You, um, you, I would say like, you know, there's, there's a lot of dog whispers out there, but I mean, I've seen you personally work with my boy, of course, my guide dog, Andros, and all the other guide dogs on the campus, of course, back when you were Southeastern Guide Dogs, and um, you just know how to work with those dogs and get them to trust you. I mean, there's no other way to describe you, but like, just like a dog father. (laughs) That's really funny. You know, and it honestly, um, I I don't know that I see myself so much that way, but um, I think it comes a lot from you know those of us in uh, in the animal world or those of us that connect with dogs sometimes mm-hmm. don't connect so well with people right you know so <laughs> that that truly was me as a child i was mm-hmm. quiet i was extremely shy um i really could not engage socially with people mm-hmm. and so animals were my way in and out and so i think that's where you know it starts for a lot of people as we mm-hmm. connect with our animals our pets um, or even the wild animals better than we do with humans. And then that kind of carries on. And that certainly was my case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started, yeah, started very early on just uh, collecting. I was really, really fortunate to have uh, parents that let me just bring anything home. So, you know, in that whole scope, and I think they thought I was probably a, a bit weird at the time. <laughs> so, you know, whatever we can do for this kid. And uh, so I would bring home uh, wild rabbits and uh, my father would help me build a rabbit hutch so we could house them and I'd bring home ducks and uh, teach them to walk on a leash with me and we walk around the, the block and so you know that's kind of how it started when I was probably eight nine ten years of age so anyways your, your friends must have loved coming over to your house <laughs> yeah they they did you know although I didn't have many friends so uh, those that I had you know I'd put a leash on them too and see if I could house them but <laughs> Um, so that that made it even more estranged I suppose yeah so um 
you know, you, you talk, you know, very briefly about your, your childhood growing up, just saying that you connected more with animals than you did with humans. So, I mean, for you, this love and appreciation for animals and wanting to work with them was basically something that you pretty much had an idea of since you were pretty much a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have to say my, um, my real father and their whole family, uh, we're all military brats, all mm -hmm. Marines. And so it was conditioned in me that, uh, you know, uh, going to college just really wasn't in the cards and um, that we would all become military because that's what the family always did and the boys in the family. So, you know, that always kind of haunted me. I felt mm -hmm. like the only way out for me was through the animal and through animal care. So anyways, I just kind of stuck to my guns and kept going to college and, you know, went to animal science and learned a lot about the large animal stock and then, um, and then progressed on to um, getting into vet school after a couple tries, I got into vet school. And, and then, so that was, you know, once again, I think that's about persistence. It's similar to what you're doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when you're dealt with a, a scenario of cards, um, you just can't give up on it, can you? You just mm. got to be persistent. And so that's the one thing I would offer my, my mother. My uh, really was strong at believing that you just have to believe in yourself first and everything mm -hmm. else will work out. So anyways, that kind of was the draw. And much to, you know, my family always kind of shamed me and shunned me that I that I didn't go into the military. And, and so anyways, you know, here I am with full circle working with service dog schools that uh, really support veterans and PTS and, and uh, the military structure. So anyways, I think having that in my background really also helps me connect with them sometimes better. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're all given the things we have in life, right? You, there's, a, there's a fate process. Um, there's some faith involved in all of mm -hmm. that as well. And if we truly just walk our own path, um, they do connect. They all come together. Yeah, that's, that's really cool to actually kind of put that into perspective, you know, coming from a military family, you know, kind of, they were upset you didn't do it, but it's kind of like, well, look at me now. I, I kind of did end up working with the military. <laughs> yeah, and we just helped in a different way. We yeah, helped exactly. in my way, right? Mm -hmm. Back through the animal structure again. Yeah. So, and as you know, you've been around enough from visually impaired as well as the uh, service dog organizations. Um some of the greatest impacts that our dogs do are with the military, but mm -hmm. certainly with visually impaired too. And so, man, what a cool mission that it's been late in my life um, to be able to pick up on that in the last 10 years. It's been really cool. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, the organizations, you know, across the world, they boast some amazing numbers when it comes to um, the decrease to the prevention of veteran suicides. So um, it's amazing yeah. what the dogs are doing. I mean, you're helping the military in a very important way. And that's with life after or transitioning out of the service. And, you know, that's, that I would say is, is some, you know, that can be just as scary as when they're serving. Um, so you have a very important role in the dogs that you help create and care for. Yeah, it's really, really kind of been fun actually to watch the progression of people and it's much like watching children grow it's watching people work through their own problems right their own um issues because that's really what it takes it takes mm -hmm. a uh, an internal struck uh stride to do that but 
the reality is the dog just gives them or helps them um, mm-hmm. pave that path so nicely. And it's really, really wonderful um, that I get to be part of that anchor system. And I mm-hmm. think that's, um, you know, that if nothing else, that has created such a value to me that I don't know that I had before. So, you know, it, it's been awesome to, it's been awesome to get to know you for the same <laughs> reason in the same way, right? It yeah. all started that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's incredible to watch people grow through that. Yeah, it's been amazing. You know, hopefully you've, you've enjoyed seeing how I've grown, you know, because oh we, we, we've known each other since, you know, 2014. I mean, it, it's crazy to think you knew me back when I was just 20 years old. And now next year I'll be 30. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any gray hair yet? I'm starting to, yes, starting to get some in the back. Oh, good. <laughs> You know, we, we can claim that as, as a uh, form of maturity um, <laughs> or just age um, or genetics. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of all three. But, Sometimes uh, also stress. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to throw that one in there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's probably the biggest factor, actually, yeah. in, which is why, you know, I'm, I'm pretty silver haired at this point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about um, your medical background. So you went to... Um, medical school um, but then you said you also then did veterinarians so have you worked with humans at all no no not really it's all Mm -hmm. it's all been through veterinary medicine gotcha so my background really was in large animals so Mm -hmm. you know in in the day um, and probably if I had to do it all over again I tell my young students look at microbiology look at some of the other degrees you can pick up in college before you get into veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my particular day, it was really about agriculture. So gotcha. um, I got an ag degree and, uh, and I enjoyed that part of it. But I learned really early on that these animals, horses particularly, mm-hmm. they're so much bigger and stronger. And when they're afraid, you know, oh, yeah. uh, I, I realized that probably was not going to be my, my direction. Um, you know, I, I valued my feet and my head better. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't sure that that was really the, the direction of medicine for me. Um, and, but I did get a chance to work with, you know, cattle and, and um, figure out whatever their issues were. You know, I grew up in Florida, so um, it's all about nutrition and soils and how things grow. Uh, that allow our animal stock to uh, to be healthy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also translates to what I do now, you know, try to find natural ways to feed our dogs and feed mm-hmm. our animals and not to say anything badly about uh, commercial dog foods or commercial um, food because they have a place, but, um, but they can't solve all of the answers. And so, you know, part of my medicine today is finding so many different ways to, um, to find you know, ways to help these guys, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't just one method and one answer. And I think that becomes the pigeonhole veterinarians fall into and clients, let's face it, you guys come to us for mm-hmm. answers. And if all I have is is a hammer in my toolbox, mm-hmm. then that's what I'm going to continue to offer out. And people get frustrated with that. Uh, so honestly, my later career has all been about finding natural ways to solve common problems. So yeah, that's what I've always loved about you personally is you're not married to just one side of, you know, the coin because, you know, there's Eastern versus Western. You know, that's always a big debate when it comes to medicine. And I've always loved how you approach both sides and have always given 
you know, you've given me the Western side and then you've always offered me up the alternatives to that when it comes to Andros, because you and I have had numerous talks while we were both at Southeastern about him and, you know, all the things that we could do to help him as he started getting older and older. So I just always loved having your perspective because it's such a unique and open-minded um, way of approaching medicine when it comes to the dogs. Yeah, I love the idea that, um, and this has really been through my training in acupuncture uh, that kind of opened my eyes to, to Eastern medicine, if you will. And the general philosophy in Eastern medicine is all about balance. You know, mm -hmm. we recognize that if, we, if the animal or the patient or the body is in balance, um, or we can get it back to that state, the body mm -hmm. will take care of most of it all itself. You know, it, it'll clean up its own problem mm -hmm. and it'll create a balance. Whereas Western medicine is all about cure. Right. Let me fix it. Let me cure you. Let me be done with it. It's solve the problem and move on. And that's how we do a lot of Western, um, you know, society as well. But Western medicine, and there's a good place for both of them. Mm -hmm. So how do we create both of that balance for that part of it? And I think that's a really big piece for me is, um, is looking at both sides and, and having, you know, being able to to put one thing down, gee, if I'm gonna approach it this way, I'm gonna use medication that does X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. but if I'm gonna approach it the other way, and then which is the least long-term negative mm -hmm. effects? And that's usually where I start. And it may be Western or Eastern, you know, depending on what we have to solve. Um, so I, I like to be able to do some of that stuff. And honestly, you know, that's really why I'm now out in California. I've kind of taken this act and moved it around the around the country mm -hmm. and so that's really what my intent is as we move forward is how do we spread that message um because i think that this serves a place for all of our service dog organizations mm -hmm. there's you know whether they serve 10 dogs or whether they've got 300 like southeastern does or mm -hmm. 350 mm -hmm. um that they produce a year i think there's a um the same problem exists in every one of these organizations they all struggle with the ability to care for their dogs on some sort of network or volume standpoint and mm -hmm. then again repeat that process on the individual that needs its individual care you know mm -hmm. and so there's a little bit of both of those so there's a farm medicine approach there's my agriculture coming in and that's how i approach it at southeastern is I basically saw them as having a thoroughbred farm. And so, you know, the bigger the school, the more farm-like we need to approach it from. Right. So if we can't solve that problem today, it's going to affect 10 more tomorrow and, mm -hmm. and then 15 more and 20 more. Um, and then once the dogs get to our graduates like yourself, then we need to change our focus into what does Chad and, uh, and Andrews need, you know, what, mm -hmm. what do the two together need to make this a working pair? And so anyways, we have to have both of those mm -hmm. concepts always at play, always. Um, yeah. And you know that um, if we can naturally, if we can do things naturally, then here we are back to that balance and the body basically then cleans itself and washes itself and allows it to move on in a much more healthier state. We haven't left anything behind where, mm -hmm. gosh, I've got to use some medication forever because I started it. I right. really always hated that feel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's so much of that today is it's a heart medication or it's a skin medication and therefore I have to use it forever. Well, the pharmaceutical industry really likes that concept. Um, but I'm not so sure that it's always the best thing for animals and for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. No, and that's what I've always loved about your philosophy is because, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls 
um, here in the West, especially when it comes to the pharmaceuticals, you know, for, for me, I can personally talk to you how I have been on um, OCD and anxiety medicine since I was 11 years old. And of course, I'll probably continue to be on it because I'm to the point now where, you know, I I do need it. And I do believe that I'm someone that needs it, but I never had the opportunity to decide for myself whether it was the healthiest or the most appropriate way to cure my anxiety. Because now that I've gotten older, you know, I've learned to manage anxiety better on my own without the medicines. And, um, you know, I, I can understand triggers and, you know, you know, meditation, deep breathing, you know, all that type of stuff. So, you know, it's definitely something that I can see definitely being a problem when not just with humans, but also with dogs. No, you're, you're right on Chad. And that's exactly it. And as we all age and progress, we either use something because we need it. We Mm -hmm. use something because it's a crutch. You know, we Mm -hmm. have to be careful. We don't create the crutch and then constantly search outside that box for how do I, how do I improve? Right. Mm -hmm. And as you've kind of come to yourself and realize that as we mature, as we get older, you just find other ways maybe Mm -hmm. to relieve your, your anxieties. And I love the idea of, uh, you know, a little meditation and some Mm -hmm. deep breathing and, and that sort of thing. Um, I know my son these days who also has some, some issues with that, um, uses the, uh, um, the Wim Hof, uh, breathing methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, uh, and the cold that I think that gentleman, uh, does a lot of. So he takes these ice showers, these, uh, oh, yeah. uh, ice cubes and, and, uh, shocks his body in the morning. Mm-hmm. And he says it really just makes a difference for the rest of his day. Uh, I got to say, I'm not brave enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> So talk to me about um, the the guide dog and service dog field, because I know prior to doing that, you had a pretty extensive um, career with your own practice, if I remember remembering correctly. No, you're right on. I, I did that for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So for 30 years, I ran a uh, small animal business um, in Clearwater, Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a I had an original one way back uh, when I first graduated vet school. That was 1987. I graduated. And after a year, I bought a clinic, a practice. I worked for two to three years. It went horribly south. And I have to say, I um, bankrupt my first business three years out of vet school. Thought the world had ended for me, really. I just thought, you know, everything that I thought I knew, you know, Mm -hmm. talk about taking your uh, your humbling experience early in life um, and realizing that um, I didn't know anything about business. So mm-hmm. that's where I needed to excel and find some information and um, and then opened another practice. You know, my wife and I, we met about that same time uh, with the business fell apart and uh, we learned very early on. We would have the saying, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. You know, you, <laughs> you, you can have whatever happens in life and uh, and struggles but if you just keep going things get better again and Mm -hmm. and so that was really a good example and within two or three years I ended up buying another practice in Clearwater Florida and ran that for 30 years and had great success at that um, to the point that you know when I when I had someone come in and, and in essence buy the clinic out from underneath me after 30 years 
I really wasn't up for sale. I was, you know, running a very successful, very fast practice and it attracted uh, some suitors. So they bought the practice for me without me trying to sell it. And um, that was another nice wake up call. So at 50, I was 50 years of age and saying, gosh, now I'm 50, I get to retire early. And my wife said, that sounds really great, but you can't stay here. You know, the, I don't have any, I don't have any space for you during the day. So you're going to have to go find work somewhere. And I sent a resume to Southeastern after about a year of being off and working at these humane societies around town and helping them where I could. And within 24 hours, Southeastern hired me. So that's really how that started at the service dog and the guide dog industry. Um, I, I saw it as a part-time work, you know, Mm -hmm. gosh, how hard can this possibly be? All the dogs live on campus. This has got to be really simple. Uh, I was really uh, quite adept at doing um, knee surgeries and hip surgeries. So orthopedic surgery has always been my, my thing to do. And uh, when I saw these hundred labs running around in their field out there, I thought, oh my God, look at all those knee surgeries that need to be done. Um, And honestly, uh, I was amazed because See, pet industry says we're going to spay neuter early, six months or under. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were doing that, of course. And I was doing a lot of knee surgeries on these dogs and for other veterinarians. And when I got to Southeastern, I saw all these labs running around, but we spayed and neutered later in life. We do spayed and neutered at 10 months, 11 months, 12 months. We wait for them to complete their growth episodes or their growth plates and their legs sealed up before we spayed and neutered them it changed everything i think i've done three knee surgeries in 10 years wow in the service dog industry where i was doing at least one a week in the pet industry wow so it was an automatic wake-up call one that i don't know that i actually believed until i saw it for myself Mm -hmm. that all of those labradors running around crazy like um (laughs) just because we gave them more chance to grow, four more months worth of growth made all the difference in the world in their orthopedic disease. And mm-hmm. so that then opened up a whole nother door for me. When I started, you know, just thinking about that one simple thing, it, if just by giving them enough time, change their orthopedic design that much where we weren't seeing that kind of damage, what else could be changed? Mm-hmm. You know, what else? And, and I would, tell the, the folks at Southeastern, we get, a, we get an opportunity here to reinvent normal. And so these dogs are normal and, and let's face it, um, medicine and sometimes humankind gets in the way. We mm-hmm. bastardize our dogs and almost everything else we touch if we give it long enough. And I kind of felt that's what was happening and Southeastern gave me a, a new view. And so, that then became, you know, why, why we're sort of looking at fecal transplants and, and just by giving sick dogs, normal dogs stool, mm-hmm. their diarrhea right. forever um, was another eye opening. You know, mm-hmm. it's just amazing when we started looking at these simple things to say, gosh, if we can make these kind of simple adjustments and it didn't take medicine at all we get a chance to, you know, once again, what else is out there? Mm -hmm. What else can we correct? So that was really, really a pretty cool thing to find um, that we, um, and 
you know, uh, Titus and, uh, and the school at Southeastern allowed me to dabble and to work outside the box, if you will, outside mm. of conventional norm. Um, and then we started finding a lot of interesting and um, new forms. We call them alternative medicines. Let's face it, alternative medicine would imply that the normal, you know, whatever drug that we do something for, we're going to alter that in an alternative form and the reality is the alternative medicines that we call a is new were probably there before the medicine was mm-hmm. you know medicine's only really been around since the 40s when we think about it at least modern day medicine penicillin first got it started somewhere about 1928 to 1940 um due to war <laughs> and um so when we think about modern day medicine starting somewhere about there um and acupuncture starting 3000 years ago yeah. and the the idea of nutrition and what we do for other health needs oxygen um is long before any of those things you know the alternative medicines were really the original base and i thought that was really kind of a cool find as well so that really become my focus mm-hmm. at southeastern is finding the normal stuff. What does water do for us? What does, you know, water in the food versus dry food, for instance, what does oxygen do for us? What does, so, you know, that's where hyperbarics came into the play. Um, uh, And what is acupuncture? Just, just putting needles in, in appropriate places seem to create a better stimulation. All of those became the new focus for how we move forward. And that really kind of helped me out a lot in my career as well. And it's what, what we're currently doing now is, mm-hmm. is finding ways of using the tools that are right in your own, you know, right in your home, right in your own life, mm-hmm. rather than always having to apply the medication um, for that part of it. So um, that's been kind of kind of an interesting exchange for me. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you definitely have done amazing work. You know, I've always been impressed with what Southeastern Guide Dogs was doing when it came to the medical services, because they really were doing a lot of cutting edge things. And, you know, the one thing that always was surprising was um, the lack of hip dysplasia in the, the labs at Southeastern, because, you know, that's one of the, like the biggest problems, of course, with bigger dogs is, you know, their joints, you know, they start going as they get older. Of course, you know, sometimes if we don't monitor their weight, that can also put them at a disadvantage. So of course you were also working on making sure that you gave them like the, the, the good food, you know, like the from and the science diet, which I've always sung praises for and will always sing praises for. So I was always very impressed with what Southeastern was offering because it definitely was outside of the conventional, what you were hearing from your vet and then, you know, what you were hearing from Southeastern. So I was always yeah, very, it's very interesting, impressed. Um, as I've... Well, thanks. Uh, you know, it's the... It's this crossroad now that we're at. We're at, mm-hmm. we're at a crossroad where um, we can blame it on coronavirus or COVID because it's it's done two things. It's mm-hmm. exploded the veterinary industry. Mm-hmm. So the veterinary industry has gone from, you know, probably thirty to forty percent growth in the number of pets that are out there. There's people that were staying home during COVID. You mm-hmm. know, think they adopted pets and they brought. Humane Society animals home, and that was great, took them to their vets. And so now the veterinary industry got overwhelmed and they were unable to sustain that kind of work. Today, two years later, 
the older veterinarians and even sometimes the younger ones are deciding to leave the field. So there's more vets leaving the industry than ever before, including their staff. So vet techs, the reception work, the lay staff, all of them, they're really, really struggling these days trying to keep up on the workload. And so burnout is at a high risk in that mm. industry. The service dog industry, as you know, and the guide dog industry kind of shut down. They went through a temporary uh, shutdown or decrease mm -hmm. in uh, that period of time, at least so they got things figured out because, you know, we had to make contact with people on the outside. We had a lot of moving parts. And so as they slowly have come back, they struggle finding medical services and veterinary mm -hmm. services um, around the world. It's not just here and it's certainly not just in Florida. It's all over, um, uh, all over the world. And so these industries are stuck with their, their inventory, their dogs that they're mm -hmm. training, 10 dogs, 20 dogs, 100 dogs, 300 dogs, whatever that number is. And they can't get medical services for these, these dogs and when they do get it it's sometimes way late and late so now they have a bigger problem than what they started with mm -hmm. and it costs more because mm -hmm. those veterinarians that are overwhelmed and overworked are charging more for their services because they can let's right. face it and um and you know i think there's sometimes a feel that they're doing it on purpose and it's i don't think it's so much that they just can't catch a break can't catch mm -hmm. their breath on it and so these um service dog organizations can't seem to get their foothold right. and i'm finding that to be the case um now that i'm in california at guide dogs of america and helping their organization out we um we're seeing it in oregon i just visited a school in massachusetts that's having the same problem the same problem exists in every one of these organizations. It's about the, the typical diarrhea. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the typical food issue that we've just kind of discussed uh, with the stress conditions. It's upper respiratory uh, mm -hmm. problems. If they have a breeding population, it's how do they get a handle on that uh, mm hidden -hmm. dysplasia that you just brought up? It's all of those parts. And so I'm really kind of enjoying the fact that we can connect with these schools mm -hmm. and find a better way to provide them information. Because I think the schools themselves, if they had the information, they could bring in other staff and not mm -hmm. just rely on their local veterinary um, can, uh, staff to do the, the work. So anyways, that's really where I am now yeah. is I'm starting to offer these guys um, a website. I'm in the process of actually completing a website that is loaded with all the crap inside of Dr. Conrad's head um, and um, in writing protocols. I've written um, protocols. I've started mm -hmm. to do some some lab demos on film so that schools could just plug in and say, I may not need a veterinarian, but if I knew how to do a fecal Mm -hmm. I knew how to read a ear smear and determine if it's a yeast problem, and then I could get the medication for it. That'd save these guys from having to go to the vet right. and have to make the vet appointment um, or get somebody in. And I think these schools could save, you know, I'm, I'm being 
probably somewhat soft 50 to 70 percent of their of their resources or mm. their budget for veterinary care they probably could manage if they just had the knowledge and the tools right so um so that's where our world is right now is trying mm. to figure out how do we create information load for them and they can pick it out you mm -hmm. know they don't always need veterinarians to solve that problem we don't always have to diagnose you know we right. know that veterinarians diagnose they treat and they do surgery. They're the only ones that can do those legally. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you can treat diarrhea without actually knowing <laughs> all of the causes for diarrhea by yeah. just having a protocol that says I do X, Y, and Z. And when I get to Z and I can't figure the problem out or I still have diarrhea, now I make the doctor appointment. Mm -hmm. But I bet 70% of the diarrheas or the ear problems could go away before they ever got there. Right. So anyways, this is my, uh, my next reach out is how do, I, uh, how do I offer information for the 175 schools in the United States, basically. That's definitely an impressive endeavor that you've taken on. I mean, especially with all the amazing work that, um, you know, you were doing while, uh, you know, at Southeastern, um, you know, I, the canine conditioning program that you had put together there was phenomenal. And you know, they're still using it. And I mean, the benefits that they saw from their dogs coming in. I mean, I'm pretty sure that most of the dogs under that program that were coming in were well ahead of where Andros was back when he was placed with me. Because I mean, they, you were doing so many different things that, you know, I mean, this was 2014 when you and I first met, you know, versus, right. you know, 20, you know, 2019, 2020. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the conditioning idea came off of uh, just a, uh, how we rehabilitate dogs for knees and hips and that sort of deal. So back to that orthopedic design mm -hmm. that we had. Um, and we found that we can just condition these dogs, sometimes just standing still. Now, Southeastern has taken it to a degree. They've allowed us, you know, through donations and opportunity to kind of build the program. So mm -hmm. The swimming pool where the dogs love to swim, those who do like to get in, not all of them do, but right. but probably 50% anyway. And then you got uh, the underwater treadmills. Those are probably the piece de resistance. They're mm -hmm. probably the best part of the whole program where these dogs can actually treadmill, um, pull or uh, work with that kind of flow against water. Uh, and then of course the conditioning program where we have balance balls. So it's all about balance uh, their body mm -hmm. and, and creating core design for them. And uh, what we realized early on is these dogs come to training with just a whole heap of stress on their head. Mm -hmm. um, they have to think about what the, the game plan was for the day. They've got to worry about their neighbor uh, barking and keeping them up all night. <laughs> um, uh, you know, whether that dog's going to get their food or not. And so I think competition and the mm -hmm. stress of training drives the, draws these dogs out. And as you know, half of them come in overweight mm -hmm. um, and under-muscled. And that's what we're mm -hmm. recognizing. The trainers are telling me, uh, in, even in 2014, gosh, it took them six months to get those dogs trained for the endurance of being a guide dog. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really significant number to say that these dogs couldn't handle the heat. They couldn't handle the workload until they built themselves up to it. Right. So those two systems were married to say, can we get the exercise ability, the muscle strength of these dogs up before training happens? 
so that they don't have to do that part so mm -hmm. that they don't it doesn't take six months to get that all underway and so the conditioning program at southeastern within four weeks we can muscle them up we actually measured their muscles and they gained anywhere from 10 to 20 percent more muscle development in a four-week time period That's just incredible. by standing on rubber rafts if you will that's basically mm -hmm. what those uh, those air discs are rubber mm -hmm. rafts yeah and then we put them on peanuts that look like your balance balls and they would hold themselves up on there and then you know we were offering them their treats mm -hmm. so the treats help them to exercise and to change that uh, that exercise until they can then stand on two rubber balls so mm -hmm. that was just the fun the the best part these crazy dogs but all this bound energy but no muscle and no coordination within four weeks could stand on a stack of two rubber balls um like an elephant up there and and balance themselves and not fall off we were just re that was just amazing to me and it was all just about strength and core development mm -hmm. and so reducing that one piece from training allowed the dogs to sleep better at night you know they were exhausted they were mm -hmm. sleeping better at night they were training better during the day and um, and graduation ratio, the success of those dogs rose 40% with that program. Wow. So it allows Southeastern to get more bang for their buck out of, mm -hmm. out of the dogs, right? You know, we know, we know guide dog training is, is tough. Mm -hmm. And on average in the, in the world, actually 27 to 30% of the dogs make it which mm -hmm. means 70% are not. Yeah. And so, um, so having a program that actually raised that number another 30 to 40% has been really significant. Yeah, and that's what was so amazing of what you were doing with that program. I mean, you're basically helping to, you know, almost kind of reprogram the dogs so that they were better prepared while they were already coming in. Um, and, you know, you just, it's just amazing how you were able to get those dogs to increase not only, you know, their muscle definition, but their stamina and, you know, just their overall work and success rate. Because like you said, you know, guide dog, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rough job and, you know, not every dog is going to make it. Um, and, you know, that's why there's other, you know, categories of a career for those dogs. Um, but it's great that, you have been able to develop such an amazing program that helps raise the success for people like myself and my sister in order to get the dogs that we need to help us move forward. Yeah. And obviously the measurement stick is how do they do in home, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the other side of it is we can, we can improve the dog for the time being or mm -hmm. for the training. Um, it's how do we make sure that they stay that way or that mm -hmm. they're healthy throughout their particular career so that they stay in the field better. And I think that's really the, the best piece for it. Mm -hmm. And that's also, once again, with the exercise, you know, so mm -hmm. many of the graduates have come to me and they say, well, that sounds really great, Doc, but there's no way that I'm going to be able to keep up that kind of an exercise program when, once they get home. You know, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so everything that you've done, they're just going to lose. Mm -hmm. Well, the cool part is we realize in the dog world, unlike humans, humans, we have 
essentially one way to metabolize glycolic metabolism where Mm -hmm. we basically use sugars to break down for our energy needs, our our mitochondrial ATP and how we produce energy so that we make a muscle, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Dogs actually have two ways. They have an oxidative mechanism and they have this this, um, glycolytic mechanism like humans do. And so if we can plug into the oxidative metabolism, the, the other form, we know that, and that takes two things. It takes more oxygen and it takes more, um, more stress and more strain. We have to push the muscles. So mm-hmm. that's really the purpose of getting them on those balance beams and swimming them hard. We have to push them hard enough to where their muscle actually changes. And so they're, they create more type one muscle, more strength and endurance mm-hmm. muscle, which is what we need in this guide dog versus the type two fast muscle. Mm-hmm. I don't need a speedy um, guide dog. I need right. an endurance guide right. dog. So but that's the difference in dogs. They can actually convert more muscle to type two and be the greyhound, or they can produce more type one muscle and be the strength dog that has either endurance, you know, whether that's a sled animal or whether that's a guide dog, that's really the same concept. Um, but it takes a certain way that we would exercise them. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of became the, the introduction of hyperbarics Mm -hmm. because we felt like, and this is really where the research Southeastern is currently setting on is, um, hyperbarics, as we understand hyperbaric medicine in humans is really about disease control, about infection and that sort of thing. They've used it to stimulate um, nervous pattern um, for the brains, uh, TBI issues mm-hmm. in the head, et cetera. Um, they've used it for um, uh, Alzheimer type conditions, but primarily what we recognize hyperbarics for, it's for um, either the bends, you know, uh, that was the original stuff for people that were diving and, and getting trapped with nitrogen uh, toxicities. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then it became a really great tool for gangrene and for infection. Well, the same place occurs for animals. It's really how it still worked. Uh, rattlesnake bites, um, horrible infections, that sort of thing. It works very, very well for increasing oxygen to the tissue. So we're using the tool outside the norm again. Uh, so here becomes our, my stretch. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that if we increase hyperbarics and oxygen to the dog muscle after they've exercised, they recover faster, their muscles grow faster, and their strength and endurance is heavier, is greater for that particular purpose. So no one in the world is doing this yet. Um, Southeastern has the tool and the ability to continue down this path. And I hope they're able to take advantage Mm -hmm. of that part of it, because that's really where the research was going, Mm -hmm. um, was to prove to not only the the veterinary industry, but also the guide dog industry, that if we can just find ways of increasing the exercise, um, I still get everyone uh, in the service dog industries and the guide dog industries kind of looking at me cross-eyed that that this actually works. Increasing their exercise before they train actually works. And if we increase oxygen while they're in that process, I think they'll get another 10 to 20% higher more muscle development, more strength train. Um, And then the key to all of this is once we convert the muscle, it doesn't convert back. So to answer my guide dog um, folks that are out there saying, I can't exercise my dog at home like you guys are doing, it won't matter. 
once we've made the conversion, their muscles always remain the type one muscle that we converted. They hold on to it for life. And it, in theory, then prevents them from future disease down the road. Less liver problems, less bone problems, less heart problems, all of it across the way. So they become a guide dog in your home for longer periods of time. That's really kind of the whole resistance. That's amazing. It's just crazy to try to wrap your head around <laughs> yeah but you know it's it's really amazing work and um you know I, I feel like i think that's the good thing about the guide and service industry though for dogs is um i feel like you get a lot more room to adventure outside the norm and try and discover if there's ways that you can do things better because i you know i just feel you know, maybe there's a lot more freedom or maybe you're just not as married to one way of thinking, but I do definitely believe that, you know, the veterinarians and the medical services and the guide dog and service dog world, they're definitely more so on the cutting edge of the science and the health behind everything. I, I think you're right, Chad. And uh, there's a couple reasons. Obviously, you have to have the school that wants that, that want that believes in that process. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, donations or resources that allow you to experiment just a little bit. But to me, the key is the fact that these organizations that are doing their own breeding, mm -hmm. where you're not treating just one individual dog, um, you know, let's face it, 90% of the organizations, even in the service organization, is hiring a veterinarian from outside their walls, mm -hmm. who are going to be primarily their pet veterinarian or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so though they're going to approach things the same way they would in their own practice. And they come in, they're going to give a vaccine, they'll look at the dog, they've got a limping dog, they're going to put it on Rimadil or some sort of uh, ouch medicine. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. The veterinarians that are able to stop and look at the whole herd, all of the dogs together, and only any population the entire litter. So I don't have one dog looking at it. I have the eight that they came with. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, if Fluffy is having a particular problem with this, I wonder what his litter mates, Fifi and Mary and George are doing. Mm -hmm. And darn, you know what? Six out of eight of these puppies are all doing exactly the same thing. So this is genetic, it's hereditary, it's, it's whatever that is. There's a whole nother piece to the puzzle that never gets discovered mm -hmm. in a regular pet practice because they don't, they don't see the other. So they don't have any, any knowledge of that. So that's really where the expanse comes from. It comes from the base that you can not only follow that litter, but even then connect with the genetics department that's attached to that program to say, what was the litter before this? Mm -hmm. How many litters has this female had or this dog? So if it's been two or three and what has her genetics been like? So it was, we're tracking, I don't know, eye problems or ear problems or whatever, or hip dysplasia, whatever that is. That's why the hip dysplasia gets to be dialed down so well is we're using tools like x-rays to pick out our proper breeders but then the genetics of that gets to really drive in because we have this five to seven generations of information mm -hmm. that veterinarians just plain do not get a chance to work with in a normal practice setting. Um, and it really changes the whole scope on how we see it as long as we take the time to look. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the advantage that these guide dog schools or these veterinarians get to have that are attached to these programs. Yeah. You know, and you know, some people, you know, they have 
their opinions when it comes to the schools doing their own breeding. And, you know, you know, everyone's, you know, of course, open and valid to their own opinions. But um, like you said, the, the benefit to having the breeding program on campus is what you just touched on is, you know, if a dog is exhibiting problems and you're able to track it through its genetic tree because you can actually see and account for the breeding, then you can either A, solve the problem with the dog or maybe realize that there's something wrong with that particular line of the family. And maybe it's not a good idea to continue that family forward because it might continue to have the same problems. Yeah, it's re really, really an amazing part of the work and, and equally as important as just the, the medicine itself is understanding where that thing came from so mm -hmm. that you can stop it in the pipeline, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, and prevent more problems from coming on. So that's also why it's really, really important from, you know, once these dogs graduate and they, they get into your home is that um, these schools and the veterinarians that are attached to them continue to gather the information. So mm -hmm. we want to know, you know, how's Andros doing at five and seven and 10, because that information leads back to the genetic tree again, mm -hmm. say, you know, this has been a really good breeding combination or gosh, we found a similar problem mm -hmm. or cancer started showing up at the cancer age mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of these litters have that. So what's that tree going to uh, attach mm -hmm. to? So, you know, if I could, if I could do any shout out to my uh, graduates, it's help us collect the information on mm -hmm. your own dog so that we can continue to, um, to improve all of them, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's about um, that. I think that's another really big piece that we haven't touched on yet is the, the, the community for which we all serve. The community mm -hmm. of graduates um, is so incredibly um, important to stay together and to feed each other information um, and probably bigger than anyone else has, has done. So, yeah. Yeah, please, please continue to feed us back information and, you know, and shame on us if we don't do the same. We need to also do the same for our graduates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we're, it's just as much as um, us helping you as you helping us, you know, it's, you know, it's up to us to understand that, um, you know, if, if we don't give you the right information and we're not coming to you with questions, then, you know, that doesn't help you at all and doesn't help us at all. You know, for instance, you know, the conversation I remember you and I having um, one time was um, Andros, you know, his ears were starting to become more and more sensitive. And of course, you know, he'll be 10 this year. Um, so it's crazy to think he's already that old. But, you know, we were talking and I'm just like, you know, he's never really had problems with high pitched noises or reverberations from like the windows when the when they're down in the car. And, you know, well, you, and then, you know, you and I, we just sat down and you started to go through all of these different questions with me. And we started to wonder, well, maybe um, does he not have enough water in his diet? And of course, you know, he drinks a lot, but you're like, well, maybe we should introduce it into the food and then also maybe give him um, dog food that's made from things from the water. So that way we're increasing the, the, the fluid and liquid in his ears canals because you, you were explaining to me as they get older, you know, that starts to kind of go away, which of course makes it a lot more sensitive when it comes to higher pitch noises. And of course we made the adjustments, you recommended the type of food and 
you know, all this stuff. And basically it's just a long way of saying, you know, I came with you with a question and then you and I sat down together and we talked about what we think would be the cure. And together we came up with our solution. And I've been using the, um, the white fish and potato ever since, you know, we had that discussion and just introducing more water into his diet. And hopefully it's made the difference you're looking for. Yes, he's been a lot better. Yay, so glad. So, and you're absolutely right. You know, that, that shares the fact that this is a partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, veterinarians in, in our own scope sometimes get to, get to be the, uh, the expert in the room, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then everyone's waiting for them to solve all the problems. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it takes the partnership. It takes both sides mm-hmm. um, because we don't know all the answers. That's for sure. I, Lord mm-hmm. knows I don't. Um, but I love the ability for you and I to, to share mm-hmm. whatever the problem is and throw conversation back at this. And it's not just a one and done. It's mm-hmm. a it's a lifelong progression. I think that's really, really important for us. Yeah, also, really, really big for our service dog um, graduates that mm-hmm. they feel connected to the program, connected to the school, connected to people like myself to where they can reach out and ask whatever questions. Mm-hmm. And we need to be equally as available to, to uh, provide what we know. And yeah. be, you know, not ashamed to say, gosh, I don't actually know the answer to that. Let's mm-hmm. see if both of us can find that out. Right, but it goes back to the whole serving the community and making sure that, you know, we're working with our students, you know, and helping them. I lost you. Oh, what's that? I, I think I lost you there. For a <laughs> oh, right. That's all right. You got me back though. <laughs> yep. I got you now. All right. Basically I was just saying, but you know, it, it just goes back to serving the community, that guide dog and service dog community, which is so important, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, really, really is. So talk to me about well, very what good. you're doing nowadays because it's completely different. I mean, I definitely was surprised when I heard uh, good old Dr. C had uh, changed his path in life. So um, talk to me about what you're doing today and just, you know, um, what made you decide to start, you know, just traveling the world and just sharing your knowledge with other schools? You know, it's a big change for you. It is a big change. And honestly, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in my 60s and wasn't something I saw coming. I didn't mm-hmm. expect it. Uh, at the same point, I would always tell everyone, me included, I have to live by my own, ex- my own words that uh, when a door or an opportunity opens up, you know, sometimes you just have to walk through it, mm-hmm. and take the take the next step. So um, honestly, Southeastern, was, is in their period of growth post-COVID. Uh, we were looking to hire veterinarians. We did that. Uh, there was a number of changes that were occurring at the organization, still are going through changes. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think we all, it's such a, a high endeavor at mm-hmm. um, these organizations for us to constantly feel uh, put about how it moves forward. Mm. And I really felt like Southeastern was at a point that they either a didn't, didn't need my impression or my information, or they didn't really want it at this point. Mm. They had enough things going on. The administration kind of took their own turn. And so anyways, as I mentioned before, gosh, I started looking around at the country and realizing that 
of the 175 or so um, other guide or service dog organizations out there, everyone's suffering from the same thing. They mm-hmm. all had the same problems and the same needs at Southeastern. And since we had a veterinary on campus that we had hired and another veterinary staff and potentially a, a third veterinarian, this might be a good time for me to see if there's some other help out there. And so mm-hmm. Guide Dogs of America in California, um, they really struggled after, um, after the COVID experience. They were without veterinarian completely and really had lost their medical team, their entire medical team. Mm. So I came out and took a look at what they needed. I realized that it is the same as what I was doing at Southeastern, but had no one to build their team. And mm. so it became the next, you know, it's really kind of the next endeavor for me. I think from that standpoint, it's easy to see what's missing. It's, uh, at least at this point in my career, it's recognizable that uh, um, whether I'm, I think I'm, I'm bigger than that or not, I don't know, but I think it's not that hard to fix. And so I signed up, I said, you know, mm-hmm. give me, give me three months. I think I can fix your problem. They had <laughs> two years worth of dogs that were not um, spayed or neutered. And I said, that's not a problem on our end of it. You just need someone that can do the surgery and get it done. So mm-hmm. here we are three months out and I'm completely, I'm, I'm done with all of those parts. We put a team together, uh, the, the agreements we came to, except for finding them a veterinarian. So the vets in California seem to take about 18 months to two years to come about. Mm-hmm. So they need help finding someone to re- now replace me at this point. <laughs> um, and they've agreed to keep me on for a year. So that's kind of where we currently are negotiating or deciding. But honestly, if I could find a veterinarian, I think they're in a good situation. And while I'm out here, there's a school in Oregon. And like I said, another school I reached out to in Massachusetts. And both of them um, also are having some issues, exactly the same issues. Mm-hmm. So I'm realizing that I could travel around to the, all of these schools in one form or another, just mm-hmm. like you and I are doing through Zoom now, mm-hmm. um, some of these schools we probably could manage just through Zoom communications or having a, a walkabout um, on, on a computer screen for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them just need laboratory uh, experience. And so they've got a staff member that maybe we can teach them how to do, you know, uh, various lab work and, and such to help them uh, manage their own kennel problems. Mm-hmm. And others are going to need me on campus to do what I've done now at, at the school in California. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of opened up a whole nother business track for me, right. uh, not something I expected to do. And so I'm hoping that the website that we've provided with just libraries of information will serve a big part of it and keep people from feeling like they need to be spending more money, but rather spend less. So here's an opportunity once again, for me to help people or help uh, the service dog organizations, all of them mm-hmm. gather information and create, be, and create knowledge, do their own thing. If they need um, expertise on campus, then I'm happy to help uh, explore that too for them. And if they just need the information, then they could move on and everybody can save money and save time. And hopefully that benefits our dogs um, across the country and, and even internationally, if people mm-hmm. really wanted to 
to do that. So anyways, that's where I am currently. Well, it sounds amazing. It sounds like you're doing some really great work, you know, basically just sharing your depth of knowledge. Cause I mean, you got so much up in that head of yours <laughs> that can help so many people and so many um, partnerships like Andros and I. Um, and, you know, it's just great to hear that you're doing something so incredible. And, you know, I wish you nothing but success. And, you know, I hope it, you know, it doesn't only just take off here in the, the U.S., you know, I hope, you know, internationally, you know, you can spread and expand because, you know, it's just amazing of the possibilities of what you could do. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really looking forward to this part of it, you know, at least as long as people want it or need it, mm -hmm. and if they don't, then that's okay too, you know, there's mm -hmm. always a, I always feel like there's a place for, um, for more work or more opportunities, so mm -hmm. I'm the type of person that I can't really stop, um, I, you know, retirement, this, this is kind of what retirement looks like for me, is right. being able to move around and, and feather animals because it's really not work for me mm -hmm. um and it provides me a chance to to do this until until people don't need it anymore i suppose uh for that part of it um and then from a veterinary standpoint i have to be careful licensure wise right so to get licenses in these various states mm -hmm. uh probably would not internationally but as i enter the state if i'm going to stay there then I, i'll get licensed for that state to do mm -hmm. veterinary work um, but in the meantime, there's so much we can do, as we mentioned, it's, it's the same problem repeated over and over, um, that just instructional, just teaching these mm -hmm. schools how to solve their own problems, I think is really the, the main case. That's really the best part that I can offer is just information and education and, and teach them how to, how to do everything from breeding to, uh, diarrhea control to treating ear problems to managing food teaching them how to cook you know mm -hmm. I've, I've got um just a ton of recipes dog recipes on how to cook these for these dogs that have um whatever you know have uh, uh skin problems or the conversation we had about andros and uh the hearing loss actually mm -hmm. being water associated um you know all of those things really mm -hmm. i think are are an opportunity to share with other other people other schools well, I just want to say thank you so much for um, sitting down and talking with me today. You know, it's been great to talk with you, catch up, hear what you're doing. Of course, you know, talk about what you've already done because um, you're an amazing human being and you've definitely have just helped so many people's um, lives, you know, whether it be a veteran or someone like myself. Um, definitely your work has impacted so many people and, you know, you've, you've saved lives, you know. I, I, you know, you know, it's not hyperbole when we say that the dogs that you've worked on has helped save people's lives. So we just thank you so much for all that you do and all that you continue to do, Dr. Conrad. You're really pretty incredible. Thank you for all of that, Chad. And, <laughs> and so, um, I, I don't know if I live up to those things, but I do appreciate that. And, and honestly, uh, I'm impressed with this opportunity for you, and, and I wish you much success as well. I think uh, this is really a good place for you. Um, you're, you're good at this. You're good at communicating with people. So, um, so God bless you. I hope everything works really, really well for you. Well, thank you so much. Um, if anyone has questions, do you mind if they pass them to me and I uh, give you a chat and have you help me answer some questions if we have any? Yeah, I'm happy to. You oh, bet. right. Was, of yeah. course. And of course, the yeah, easiest way for you guys to 
ask me questions is, of course, to email me at cmbouton, that is C-M-B-O-U-T-O-N at yahoo.com. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at 2200 Hindsight. That's where the podcast is on Twitter. And of course, on Facebook, it is capital H Hindsight, capital I is 20 slash 200. Hindsight is 2200. Again, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Thank you to my amazing guest, Dr. Kevin Conrad, for sitting down with me today. I appreciate it. I hope you guys all enjoyed what he had to say. And again, if you have any questions, don't feel afraid to reach out. Until we meet again, my friends, have a great day and bye-bye.